We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. Amen. God's character is marked by many different traits, forgiveness, steadfast love, mercy, patience, kindness, But the feature of the character of God that we have been seeing more and more as we've been in a series on the book of Leviticus is, of course, God's holiness. This is the one feature of God that is repeated three times in the scriptures when it's ascribed to to God. Holy, holy, holy. And already at several points in this book, we've come to see that the holiness of God and his presence presents a danger to sinful and rebellious humanity, like all of us. And in today's challenging text in Leviticus chapter 10, and I do invite you to open up to Leviticus 10, this danger of God's holy presence is on full display. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, And put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It's likely when this incident took place, and I realize this is a bit shocking to us in many ways, but it's likely that when this incident took place that the shouts of joy with which chapter 9 ended in verse 24. They shouted for joy and fell on their faces, that humble, joyful response to the presence of the Lord, approving of the priesthood and the sacrifices that had been inaugurated in chapter 9. Those shouts of joy were likely still reverberating around the congregation that was gathered at the front of the tabernacle to watch the ordination of the priests and the inauguration of true worship. And then we get this. It was probably at least within a few hours. Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And they're immediately consumed by a fire that comes out from before the Lord and they die. For those of us who are tempted to approach God casually, and I think that's basically all of us in this culture, this this passage actually, actually calls us to attention. Do you remember the response of the disciples when they encountered the power of Jesus in that boat long ago on the stormy sea, when Jesus spoke and he rebuked the wind and the waves and it, got, and it became still? They said, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And I think when we come to an incident like this, we don't engage these kinds of texts that often in the church and Um, Maybe you're wondering, you know, why did I walk in today, the one day that they're talking about this? Um, But I I do think when we engage texts like this, there is that response. Who then is this 
Who are we dealing with here? What is God like, and what is his disposition toward us? The who then is this? Isn't it so much this God is so amazing, and he protects his people in this time of great trial and brings them through this ferocious storm, but it's really more, who is this God who would strike dead the first two sons of the great high priest Aaron, who's been freshly anointed, who themselves had just been consecrated and set apart, but just because they approached him in the wrong way, a little bit of the wrong kind of fire. I mean, that's a natural response to this text, isn't it? And I think it says something actually about our moment. It says something about the moment that we're living in, probably for all of us, because if we're honest, our first reactions to this story are to express some displeasure with God for his actions here. You know, we tend to read this and we think God is on trial because we overestimate and have more confidence in than we should our moral judgments. So we look at this and we, we put God in the dock. He's on the stand. And we're the judge. And yet, I do think a different approach is called for as we engage with these kinds of passages in Scripture. Perhaps one of, wow, God, I don't think I really understand your holiness. And I don't think I really grasp the sinfulness of sin in a very real way in my life. And I'm sorry for that. Would you enable me, Lord, to understand you more deeply? Would you enable me to understand the nature of your character and your holiness and the nature of my sin and the nature of your provision? Lord, would you be gracious to me and just have mercy on me, a sinner? I'm hopeful that our reflection on this text this morning will lead us in our hearts to that kind of disposition and response as we wrestle with something that certainly does strike us as challenging that it will help us to lay down a foundation within our hearts of holy and reverent fear that would inspire us to unwavering gratitude for God's provision for us in Jesus. So we're going to do four things this morning as we approach this text. The first is, what about this strange fire? We're to look at the strange fire. The second, what about the consequences of the strange fire? The third, so how do we avoid those consequences? And then the fourth, uh, we'll, we'll think about what that means for how we seek to live our lives as disciples of Jesus in the present day. So first thing, what, what about this strange fire? So we read it already, but they brought this strange fire before the Lord. What's going on here? What's the, what's the fulcrum over which this whole thing turns? And the defining feature of chapters 8 and 9, so we're going to give this in context a little bit. It's always helpful for us to read these kinds of passages in context. But in, in chapters 8 and 9, the refrain is, as the Lord commanded Moses. I mentioned this last week. As the Lord commanded Moses. It's mentioned seven times in chapter 8 in the ordination and consecration of the priesthood. It's mentioned three times in chapter 9 with the inauguration of the worship of God's people. As the Lord commanded Moses. What's being emphasized over and over and over again is that God has revealed the way that he is to be approached. How he longs to dwell with his people. And they've responded by obediently putting into practice that which God had revealed. They had listened, and as the Lord had commanded Moses, so also they did. And this sets up chapter 10 for us as we get to chapter 10, because we have this picture of a humble, yielded, obedient people 
and they enter into the presence of the living God and fire comes out from before the Lord in verse 24 and burns up the offering on the, uh, the, the ascension offering on the altar as a manifestation of the presence of God in their midst. And this is a glorious moment and that's why they shout for joy and fall on their faces. And what comes out of that presence of God? Remember, the heart of God is to dwell with his people. Why does he long to dwell with us? Because he knows that we need him more than anything else. And what happens when God dwells with us? We experience blessing. And that was the theme at the end of chapter 9. Twice, Aaron blessed the people. Then Aaron and Moses, having gone into the tent of meeting, come out and they bless the people. In the presence of God, there is blessing. It's this wonderful moment. So then we turn the corner into chapter 10. And what about this strange fire? And did you catch what we read at the end of verse 1? Nadab and Abihu bring this strange, it could be translated foreign, or as the ESV does, unauthorized fire before the Lord. And then verse 1 is the key phrase, which he had not commanded them. I mean, if, you've been, if we've read chapters 8 and 9 attentively, this is such a clear contrast, which he had not commanded them. Now, what is this fire. Well, a censer was a, a metal object in which they could put coals. And so these are likely coals that are very hot that, on which they would put incense. And then the incense would, would um, waft up and be a pleasing aroma before the Lord. And there, there isn't a precision on what the strange fire really is or what their sin, Nadab and Abihu's sin, really was. But there's some decent guesses, and I'll give you a few of them. Uh, one is that maybe they got those coals from a profane place. That means not holy, not set apart to the Lord. In, in chapter 16 in the Day of Atonement, Aaron is instructed to get the fire for his incense from the bronze altar in the tabernacle courtyard. So maybe they got it from just an oven in one of their homes. That's one possibility. And so it was profane. That is common or not holy. Another option is that it has to do with their um, egregious actions in relation to place and time. And here's what I mean. They probably were trying to get into the Holy of Holies. And the reason I say that is because in the Day of Atonement, which we'll come to in a few weeks, in chapter 16, it begins this way. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. So they're referring back. Moses is referring back to chapter 10. And the Lord said to Mo uh, um, sorry, the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, the Day of Atonement liturgy is given to the people of God to kind of make up or give the right pathway in to what Nadab and Abihu were probably going in in terms of the wrong pathway, but they were going to the wrong place and they were going at the wrong time. And what do I mean by that? They weren't invited. They hadn't been invited into the Lord's very presence. When somebody shows up at, even at your house and they're not invited, it probably takes you a little bit by surprise. I mean, hopefully as faithful followers of Jesus, you open your door and welcome them. But if somebody shows up at a king's house uninvited, that was a serious offense in the ancient Near Eastern world. In some cultures, it, it was a capital offense. So think about Esther and her words sent through a messenger to Mordecai, Esther 4:11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, without being invited, there is but one law to be put to death. So wrong time. They hadn't been invited. 
So what of this strange fire? It's, it's, it's this not commanded by the Lord, something that they are doing and bringing into his presence at the wrong time in the wrong place, maybe with the wrong kind of fire. Basically, Nadab and Abihu represent good old-fashioned self-will and rebellion and a cavalier and casual approach to the holy Lord of glory. Proverbs 3 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There's another really good example of this in King Saul's life. You might remember in 1 Samuel 15 when he was commanded to go and destroy the Amalekites to, to bring divine justice upon that people. He was told to wipe out everything. And in the battle, what does he do? He saves Agag, the king, and the best of the cattle and sheep. And so when Samuel shows up and finds Saul after the battle, he says, Saul, what have you done? And Saul says, look, I just did what the Lord commanded. And I also saved these sheep and cattle because they were going to be great sacrifices to the Lord. And do you remember Samuel's words to Saul? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, which would be a great word for Nadab and Abihu, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul experiences divine judgment because he does something unauthorized. He walks in his own way. So that's what strange fire is. And we could think about a lot of things in our lives that we bring before the Lord that are things of this world. Pride, arrogance, greed, lying, unforgiveness. So many different things where we strike out on our own way. So what are the consequences of this strange fire? Because obviously, uh, when people sin against the Lord, they don't all get struck dead like Nadab and Abihu did. Thanks be to God. Um, but they did in this case. This is a unique moment. And I, I want to just unpack, so what are the consequences here? How do we think about the fact that they were actually suddenly struck dead by fire. And it's interesting, actually, the phrase in verse 2 is exactly the same as the phrase in verse 24. Two verses later, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I want to suggest there's a hint for understanding the severity of this consequence. Um, obviously, Paul tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And so, in a sense, every sin is worthy of this kind of consequence. But there's some, uh, some clues here. So, in, chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 10, uh, Yahweh, uh, the Lord, speaks to, Moses, to, to Aaron. And this is only one of three times where he speaks directly to Aaron. The other is in Exodus 4 and Numbers 18. Usually he speaks to Moses. Sometimes he speaks to Moses and Aaron. So this is significant. And this is what he says, starting in verse 9, if you're open in the text. He says, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. There's this prohibition on drinking alcohol, wine, or strong drink whenever a priest were to go into the tent of meeting. And this is a prohibition given as a statute forever throughout your generations. And I, this, this gives us some clue as to maybe another dimension of what was going on with Nadab and Abihu. I think the best reason, the best explanation for this prohibition against strong drink suggests that Nadab and Abihu had had too much to drink 
and that that was somehow part of their going in and offering strange fire before the Lord. They had had a lapse of judgment. And why is this so important for the priests? Because of what verses 10 and 11 say. What is the job of the priests? To distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Now, holy things were things that had been dedicated to the Lord. They had been set apart and handed over to the Lord. These were the priests themselves, the tabernacle and all of its, um, all of its material, all of the instruments inside the tabernacle and the vessels in the tabernacle. All of these things were holy to the Lord. They had been set apart. And then there were things that were common. Those were the things that hadn't been set apart in that unique way. Now, you might say, well, all of Israel was a holy nation. And I would say, yes, they were. Relative to the pagan nations around them, they were holy and set apart. But relative to the priests in the tabernacle, they were common. And so the priest's job is to clarify these distinctions between holy and common. The second distinguishing work of the priest was to clarify between clean and unclean. So within the realm of the common, you have the realm of the holy and the realm of the common. Within the realm of the common, you have the clean and the unclean. And this was about ritual purity, which was necessary to come before the Lord's presence. And this leads into then, this statement here leads into chapters 11 through 15, the five chapters that are probably the most difficult in Leviticus, and we're going to deal with them in one fell swoop next week. Um, but the, the distinction between clean and unclean, and that ritual purity that was required of Israel to enter into the presence of the Lord as common people but ritually clean, was suggesting to the people of God just how holy God actually is. And all of the regulations around that in these five chapters give window into the holiness of God and the care and the seriousness with which he is to be approached by his people. The priest is there to discern and distinguish between these things. The second thing the priest is to do is in verse 11. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to Moses. These were high callings and responsibilities of the priests. Therefore, they were not to drink any alcohol when they went in to serve in the tent of meeting, when they were in the role of making these judgments and discernments. There's something else going on here. Many uh, ancient Near Eastern religions would use strong drink to change the mental state of the priests or whoever they have to get access to the divine realm. Actually, this still happens today. People use drugs and alcohol to change their mental state in order to have access to the transcendent realm. I actually was on a train with a young guy from uh, in South Africa. I studied abroad in South Africa, and we, we had a 16-hour journey. His name was Paul, I, I'm Mark, and we were traveling with Peter, so it was a very kind of Christian <laughs> place. Uh, but I was the only Christian in the car, and I've been witnessing to my friend uh, Peter, who was a, basically a newly enlightened Buddhist from Canada, and Paul was a South African, and he was a devout worshiper of Satan, and I'm not kidding. And, and throughout the train ride, I, he, I pulled out my Bible and started to read, and he launched into a conversation, gave me a lesson in evangelism from somebody who was very committed to his witchcraft and to the worship of Satan. But he would also smoke marijuana uh, in the train car and kind of use that as a means of accessing the spirit world that he was so accustomed to. People do this all the time, even today. And what God is saying by this prohibition on the priests from drinking strong drink when they serve in the tent of meeting is, I won't be approached in the way that all these pagan deities are approached. This isn't about manipulating your mind. In fact, I need you to be in the best of your mind. What does the New Testament call us to? To be sober-minded. I need your faculties to be fully operating as you come and come near to me so that you can make right discernments and judgments that I might be worshiped properly as the holy God that I am. 
So Nadab and Abihu had an exalted role within the community as holy to the Lord. And they failed in that role. Maybe they got drunk. They lost their discernment and judgment. But they failed in that role and they brought strange fire before the Lord. And it's understanding something of this role that we understand the, the severity of the consequence here. They were the ones that were supposed to be clarifying distinctions and boundaries. And what God says is when you're not going to uphold the boundaries then I'm going to step in and uphold them for you. Why? Verse 3, if you've got it open. This is what the Lord had said. This is Moses saying to Aaron. Among those who are near me, that is the priests, I will be sanctified or I will be made holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So if you're not going to do it, Nadab and Abihu, then I'm going to strike you down in this severe judgment so that all the congregation who's gathered around and sees this, this profaning of my sanctuary... By your cavalier approach to me, they'll see the severity and the power of my judgment in its instantaneous work, and I will be declared as holy among them, even though you have dragged me through the mud, so to speak. I will be shown as the glorious one among all of my people in this moment. And I think that's one of the reasons that there is this substantial judgment that goes on here for Nadab and Abihu. So let me ask then thirdly, how do we avoid this consequence? The danger that the holy presence of God poses to us as sinners is mitigated when and only when we follow the prescribed way of approaching God, which God in his mercy has revealed to his people. Follow me here. In the time of, Levit of Leviticus, throughout the Old Covenant, this way to be in the presence of the holy God was revealed through the, through the sacrifices and the mediation of the high priest, Aaron. Since the new covenant began and Jesus entered into the world, we follow the pathway that is the substance of which these things about which we are learning in Leviticus are merely the shadow. Which is to say that we follow the pathway that God has given us through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, meaning we come through his self-offering and sacrifice. Remember, his blood is the greatest cleansing agent ever known for sin, and his blood is the most costly ransom ever paid for sin. And it is adequate and sufficient for you and for me. Thanks be to God. And his ongoing intercession, as we looked at last week, he lives forever to make, always make intercession for us at the Father's right hand in the heavenly tabernacle is adequate for sinners like us to be brought into his presence. In fact, to enter his presence boldly, as the author of Hebrews declares. We, we avoid that consequence upon sin that we see fill, um, fulfilled on Nadab and Abihu here in Leviticus 10. We avoid it by walking in this pathway that God has provided for us as his people that he loves that he atones for, that he cleanses, that he sanctifies, that he infuses with his spirit and life. That's how we avoid these consequences. Take these pathways away, as Nadab and Abihu did. Take these pathways away. Try to enter into the presence of God in some other unauthorized way, and the merciful protection of the gracious God is lost. We quickly discover that our God in his holiness, 
That quality that sets him apart in terms of purity and power and love is indeed a consuming fire that his holiness will consume all sin and impurity. That is no less true today than it was true in this incident in Leviticus 10. But thanks be to God that there is a pathway. And here we we sit and reflect on the actions of God to create this pathway. What was the role? What did God say when when through Moses to Aaron in verse 3, this is what the Lord says, among those who are, near, who are near to me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. When my priests won't do it, I will find a way. And in that case, in Leviticus 10, it was through this dramatic, severe judgment upon Nadab and Abihu that caused grief to Aaron and his other two sons and to their family, no doubt. And some of the chapter deals with that. They're told not to put on the mourning rites because those would have made them impure. They're usually associated in chapter 21 with impurity. And so they're told not to do that because they're in a moment of consecration in service in the tabernacle. But others would mourn for them, Moses says. God says, I'll enter in. And demonstrate my glory. Well, how does he enter in, of course, most of all? He enters in through the person of his son, who is the one great priest that didn't need a priest. The one great priest who was flawless, who had never brought any kind of strange fire before the Lord, who lived a perfect life. And God says, look, I'm going to bring that judgment that falls upon the reality of sin because of my holiness. I'm going to bring that judgment that fell upon Nadab and Abihu. I'm going to enter into the world as a human being, as the great high priest, and bring that judgment upon myself so that the people that I love can be washed and cleansed and freed. We avoid the consequence by entering into his presence through the authorized pathway of his son, Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest and sacrifice in the fulfillment of all that we learn about in the book of Leviticus. So then how should this make us live? That's my final point. We consider our frailty. We consider our need. We consider the danger of the holiness of God. We consider his amazing, incredible love poured out for us. And I hope we wrestle with this in a way that allows us to come to that place that says, Lord, you are worthy of my complete consecration, my total dedication, and my absolute surrender. You are worthy of my all. God is so vast, so holy, so powerful, so loving. He is not to be domesticated. He is to be adored and feared, loved and worshiped through his son, Jesus. Tim Keller tells a story when he was a young man. He had just become a believer in college and he had gone to a conference. And he was listening to a female Bible teacher teach at the conference and he said that she got up and said this and it changed his life. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, was the thickness of a sheet of paper, the distance then between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high, just the nearest star. And the distance across just our little galaxy would be a stack of paper 120 miles high, just our little galaxy. 
And the universe is so filled with galaxies that our little galaxy is like a dust speck among dust specks. And the Bible says, this is still her talking, that Jesus Christ holds all that together with a word of his power in Hebrews 1, 2. And then he said, she said, with his pinky, he holds it together. And then she said this, is this the kind of person you ask into your life just to be your personal assistant? Is this the kind of person you say, well, I'll try you out for a while to see if obedience to you makes me a kind of happier person? It changed his life, and we all thank God for that. This is the holy Lord of glory, so vast, so awesome, so mysterious, so wonderful, that we are simply to let go and say with Mary, let it be done to me according to your word. Or with Isaiah, here I am, send me. Lord, purge me of all the strange fire in my life that I might be a pleasing aroma to you, holy and acceptable to you, fully handed over to you. The severity of the judgment falls upon him, not us. It doesn't mean that God can't still bring that severity as he did in Ananias and Sapphira's case in Acts chapter 5. And we still approach God as a consuming fire with worship that is reverent and filled with fear. But God has taken it in our place to free us, to walk with him, offering to him that which he has asked for and nothing else. There's good news here, really good news here. But it's also news through this text that causes us to bristle. And I think that's okay when we encounter the Holy Lord of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And it would be right to say this morning that we fear you. And we are overwhelmed at the pathway that you have provided for us who have been addicted at times to strange fire. Lord, purge us, we pray. Grant us growth day by day as your children, full of joy, but also falling on our faces before you. God, bless us this week as we go out to live the life of your people, your holy people, a royal priesthood, that we make, might make right judgments and discernments, protecting this temple of the body of Christ from moral impurity, from spiritual evil. Lord, grant us the grace to be your children and the power through your spirit to become more like your son, in whose name we pray, amen.